Hey there, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk Double. I'm your host, Chris Dutt. This show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports. As a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Jeremiah Johnson is my guest this week. We all have a story to tell. Some are interesting, others inspirational, and a few are important. But it's the rare story that is all three at once. Such is the case for Jeremiah. His successful career as an architect and his accomplishments as an endurance athlete belies the devastating mistake he made on October 8th, 2004. His experience teaches us that we are all connected, that the choices we make affect others. And each of us carries within us the capacity to change the world in small ways, for better or for worse. So here he is, Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, my friend. Um, you and I have had the opportunity to work together um, uh, in a in a uh, athlete coach relationship uh, since 2019, and um, you know during that time we've um, we've had uh, you know frequent um, monthly Zoom calls in which yep. we have had the opportunity to you know, obviously dive into your your training and and uh, and your racing and, and and talk about that but but you and I have also had some some really interesting in-depth uh, conversations outside of training and racing which I which I always appreciate and uh, and that's a that's kind of a big reason why I wanted to have you on the show is I think you're um, you're you're a you're a deep thinker you're you're an interesting guy <laughs> and um, and probably most important uh, to this particular show um, is that y you actually have a, an, an important story to tell. And um, I kind of want to I kind of want to give you the opportunity to to, to tell that story to uh, to the listener. But but as as we set that story up, I, I, I do think it's important for those um, uh, who aren't familiar with you that uh we we help them to recenter um to get a perspective on on who you are today uh in 2022 um you recently uh accepted a position at the university of new hampshire as an associate architect yep yeah um and again for the listener um what, what what's your background in in architecture so I went to uh, I went to college up in Vermont at a school called Norwich University. Uh, I graduated in 2002 uh, with my um, master's in architecture. And for the next 19 years after that, I worked for the same company um, in Portsmouth, which is where I live, a uh, small architecture firm and did a lot of commercial, residential, architecture, institutional, probably a lot of buildings. If people lived around my area would know, 3S art space and 
uh, Popovers, the building that's uh, in Popovers is in, um, Smutty Nose Brewery, did a lot of breweries. Ironically, when you hear some of my story, you'll kind of think it's funny. I've probably done 15 different breweries, um, just kind of a niche and um, a lot of institutional stuff. Um, worked there, uh, a firm of five, six, seven people. I'd call it a pretty traditional sort of small town, small New England, uh, small business. And then uh, just last year, a week, a year ago, next week, uh, I took a job as the associate uh, university architect at UNH, which has been great. I grew up right down the street. Um, and my father worked there for 35 years as a mechanic. Um, and so it's been a year there and it's been great. Yeah, sort of working for higher ed is a really different, um, really different perspective on my type of job and a lot of different folks to work with and a really a lot of different uh the scope of the work is really different, hmm. but still relies on a lot of the same training. Um, you know, as an architect, uh, I uh, many many architects would tell you that you know our training, our schooling is uh, both very specific at the same time, but very broad. So, you know, I feel like our skill set can could cover. You know, that's that's why I was super comfortable going there to work, just because. Um, you know, it's a very, it's, it, it crosses a lot of categories of types of work, you know, from having to be social and front facing to being, you know, sort of engineering and math minded and cranking away at your desk to being out on building sites. And um, so it's a very interesting profession that is really, truly something different every day. And um, so, you know, working at UNH has been a great fit and uh, just kind of being able to get behind all that sort of academic energy and and um effort is is feels like working for a really good cause as mm. opposed to uh most of the time just working for like big developers that are you know squeezing everybody for the bottom dollar every time so it feels like a little bit more uh um good goodwill good stuff coming out of what i do now yeah, yeah. and based on our conversations <clears throat> about your about your work and uh, it it certainly seems to me like it's a, it's a little bit different pace um, it's, a, it's a it's a different vibe um, but but all good I, I guess I'm also a little bit curious about um, were you the kind of kid that was like uh, a whiz at Lincoln logs and building blocks and like where it, it sort of seems like a kind of a crazy question but where 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 did your love for for architecture come from or when when did you become interested when when did you learn that such a thing as a architect was a career yeah that's a really funny question actually so yeah so of all the different kind of building things between legos and constructs and stuff it actually was lincoln logs that uh i was obsessed with as a kid because my uncle and and, and father had a bunch of them uh but the, it's kind of a funny answer i actually I, so i grew up on a big big family dairy farm and I, I specifically remember the moment uh, that I decided that I was interested in this type of stuff. I was in like fifth grade and my uncle, who was sort of the main caretaker of the farm, he lived at the farmhouse. Um, he pulled out this giant book of uh, uh, floor plans and like construction drawings to build animal pens. The very most like weirdest sort of like redneck thing out there, right? Like here's the drawings on how to build a pen for a goat. And, and here's how, you know, here's the size it should be. And, you know, this is what goats like. And if you do this size, then you can fit three goats and here's the dimensions of it. And here's the wood framing you need. And, 
And I was just, the drawings in it just like blew my mind. And I, I remember I asked him if I could borrow it and I borrowed it and then I didn't want to give it back to him. And then he bought me the same book for Christmas. And uh, I just was obsessed with it. It was the weirdest thing. And then from that point forward in my entire life, I always answered the question, what do you want to do when you grow up or where are you going to go to college? It was always, I want to be an architect. Um, just never, it was never a question from then on. So it was that part, you know, I always joke with my wife, like my wife is one of those sort of like, I went to college and I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. Um, but I knew I wanted to go to college and I knew I needed to grow up and I knew I needed to learn all these things. And she'll tell you that, you know, even in her forties, she's like, I still don't know what I want to do. And it's just something that's funny for me because I just cannot, I just have never, I've never had that moment in my life. I always knew what I wanted to do. Well, I love the I love the connection between farming and uh, architecture. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. I I knew that you grew up grew up on a farm. Obviously, I, I know that you're an architect. I did not realize that there was a farming connection to <laughs> yeah, your know, weird, right? <laughs> love and passion of architecture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I also think it's important um, for context for the listener to um, to understand a little bit uh, about your current. Uh, endurance racing uh, credentials, your street cred, or in this street case, cred. trail cred. Uh, trail currently, cred, I like that. Um, yeah, cred uh, being different than crud. I want to make sure that the listener is is clear about that. I'm talking about your trail cred, not your trail crud. Um, so, not only are you um, a, a successful um, uh, architect, um, but uh, you're also a, 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 a fairly significantly accomplished uh, endurance athlete as well. You're incredibly humble. So you, I'm sure, uh, will uh, retract a little bit uh, from that. Uh, my description of you as being a, an accomplished endurance athlete, but, um, but facts are facts. Um, uh, and just, you know, just to kind of rattle off a, 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 a few of the things on your endurance uh, resume that I think are, are of note and, and, and relevant. Uh, you're a six-time finisher of Ironman Lake Placid, which uh, when, 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 when folks listen to this show, um, you know, Ironman Lake Placid will have been sort of several months ago, but, uh, at the time that you and I are taping this show, uh, Ironman Lake Placid was just last weekend, I think. It was six, uh, four days ago, five days yeah, ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so a, a six-time finisher of Ironman Lake Placid. Now, Ultra distance racing, whether it's ultra distance triathlon or ultra distance trail running, um, finishes at ultra distance events are never guaranteed. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there, you know, there, there are always people who, uh, for one reason or another, are not able to finish uh, these these events. Um, you were a six-time finisher of Ironman Lake Placid. Ironman Lake Placid does not have the reputation as one of the easier. Ironman triathlons in the schedule. It's 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 fairly difficult as as uh, Ironmans go. Um, yeah, what 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 do you what do you remember fondly about about uh, one or or a handful of those? Uh, do you have any do you have any interesting stories? Uh, good great stories about Ironman Lake Placid. Sure. Well, I guess the biggest story is that uh, I'm a horrible biker. <laughs> which is always a problem when you have to bike 112 miles. You know, for me, that was, it's usually around six hours, of course, with events before and afterwards. So most of my memories usually come from the bike because I, it drives me bonkers and I'm always 
you know, more, suffering more than I love to run. I love to swim. And the swim is so early in the morning that you just don't even remember it by the time you're at noon. Uh, but the bike can just toil on forever and ever and ever. Um, but it's, you know, like Placid is just on. It's so the course is so beautiful. Um, so the two things I probably say I remember the most is just like over the course of time between training there and doing the races, just tons of like awesome scenery throughout the seasons because I'm fortunate enough that my mother-in-law happens to have, uh, she grew up up there. So she has, I have a good connection up there for lodging and stuff. So part of the reason why I've done that one so many times. And then the second one was just, uh, if anybody, if, you know, anybody's familiar with the course, there's, you know, it's very hilly. Most of it is up. Uh, but about 10 miles into the, it's a two loop race. So two loops of 56, about 10 miles into the loop. There's a, for somebody like me, who is not a very skilled biker, a very terrifying five to six mile downhill that just, you just scream on it. And I think it's of the six times I've done it. I want to say it's been raining four times on the bike. And, um, but the most memorable for me would be the second time I did it. Uh, where I got I, the first, like the first two miles, I got a two B, I got, I had my, my um, bike Jersey zipper way down in my front. It's so hot, really humid. And, uh, I had these two bees flew into me on the bike and got inside my Jersey and stung me on my chest a couple of times. And I'm like slapping my chest. And, um, so that stuck with me. And then just going down that screamer of a hill in the at So I want to say 2015, maybe there was this sort of ironic, massive thunder and lightning storm at seven o'clock in the morning, right in the middle of the swim. Uh, I say that only because it caused a lot of havoc because they forced everybody out of the lake. I don't know how they did that. I was fortunate enough to be fast enough to be gone already and, and on the bike. They forced half the people, half of 2,500 people out of the water uh, because it was lightning and thunder. But at that same time, us folks who had you know progressed just a little bit further were tearing down that stinking hill in the middle of like this pouring rain. I was so terrified. I swear, you know, it's just like, if you want to see somebody with bad bike skills, you know, just come with me and watch me go down a downhill in the rain, clenching onto my brakes and, you know, <laughs> screaming out loud. Um, so that those two things. And then honestly, uh, as corny as it sounds, you know, I'm 43 years old. Uh, my parents and my sister and my wife have come to every Ironman I've ever done. And it honestly is like, it's, I don't know. It's one of the, it's one, it's, it's like huge bonding. So gratifying. So uh, just like the connection that we've made through going through these hard times or me, you know, me going through these hard times and them sort of there like pining and suffering for me and hoping for me and wishing and like just the excitement that they've expressed when I finished that I can match myself has just been honestly one of the most overwhelming feelings um, that I've ever experienced in my family. We still talk about it because I haven't done an Ironman in four years or something. We still talk about it to this day. And I, I just truly think it's almost one of those like, I don't know the saying. I refer to it a lot and have no idea what it is. But it's like this when you share a a, 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 a trial or a tribulation or something hard with other folks, you don't even have to know them well, right? You're on a subway and you get in an accident and all the people around you, you end up coming out of with and you're your best friends because you were all there helping each other and 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 being there and leaning on each other. Uh, that's how it feels like. So I feel like we kind of like went through these big battles together and, and have come out of it and just with me being so grateful and so appreciative of the support and with them being 
just so loving and um, honestly, probably one of the, the lifelong feelings I will take of it will be their, them and their support. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any question that, um, you know, the, the, the truth is that in order to, to prepare for a race, like a, like an Ironman distance triathlon, there are, there are always sacrifices that have to be made and, and almost always the sacrifices are made uh, on behalf of family. Um, yeah. because you know, just again, training for an Ironman distance triathlon necessitates that you spend long hours training and, you know, yeah. anytime you're spend train, you you spend training is time that you're not spending with family. And so, and so, um, I mean, it really is a shared commitment, um, for, for folks that, um, uh, that have families, um, uh, I mean, everyone trains for an Ironman distance triathlon. It's just, you know, the, the, the athlete is actually outdoing the, the training, but the, but the family has to make sacrifices as well. And so it's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. race day, race day is, is really, a, it's a, it's a group celebration. It's a family yeah. celebration, right? Um, yeah. you know, everyone goes, everyone goes through things a little differently. Um, on race day, but everyone is still going through it and, and everyone is committed, invested in it as well. You're also a Boston Marathon finisher. Um, yeah. Do, 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 you, do you recall what, what, what year you did the Boston Marathon and what, what was that experience like? Yeah, it's funny. I did. I always wanted to do it. You know, I really didn't get into doing this stuff and being, you know, quote unquote, decent enough to qualify for Boston and, or didn't realize that I was sort of naturally kind of a faster runner until, uh, like, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, and not too long after that was, um, the 2000, this again, sounds a little corny, but 2013 bombing, uh, at the finish line, you know, I, for me, that was sort of like in the heart of when I was really, really, really into racing and just doing 25 races a year. And I just, I felt like, all these things that had happened, you know, all these different things that happened in the past, even though it had nothing to do with me and it was nowhere near me. Um, it just felt really close to home. Again, ironically, it was literally like the first thing I said to my wife was I'm like, usually my mom's standing at the finish line, you know, and that's just the way I thought about it. It was like the people that got hurt and injured were at the finish line. And that would have been my people. So for some reason that just like lit this fire under me. Cause I had always thought like, Oh, the qualifying and all that stuff. And I was really big into doing the Ironman and um, you know, I have some feet issues. So I just, I don't recover great all the time. So it was always really hard for me to like figure out a way to do the Ironman that I love to keep doing every year, which is right in the middle of July and still figure out a way to like train and qualify for a marathon um in time to 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 get into boston just something i had never figured out and that and 2013 happened and i was just like i i there was no i was like i have to i want to do boston marathon no matter what like i just have to do it i just felt so driven to want to do it and then of course because of the qualifying and all that rigmarole it literally took three years before i was there i was so fortunate to be able to qualify at a race and like literally one of the best days of my life and um yeah the race was stinking hard uh it was you know i you can make up as many excuses as you want my excuses personally were <laughs> it had been a really cold spring and when we went to do it it was like 74 degrees and i suffered i was just so not i definitely felt prepared to run uh i was not prepared for two things i was not prepared for the amount of sweat and electrolyte and so you know i just i remember finishing and my mom was like 
you're entirely covered in this white residue. Like it was just everywhere. And I was, I <laughs> suffered hard. And then, you know, just running 16, whatever miles it is, 15, 14 miles downhill, a gentle downhill. And then, you know, now I get why it's Heartbreak Hill. The heart, the hills aren't big. They're just timed very unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, finishing was awesome. Um, I didn't, you know, I got, I did like, 315 or something like that which at the particular time was i'd be very happy with that today that that was a little off from what i had hoped but i just remember being so i was hurt uh, the last thing i remember was i was so hurting and uh i finished and i was freezing and we uh after being you know it's like you're hot 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 hot, hot and then afterwards you stop and just clammy and cold went to the hotel uh got cleaned up and like all I could think about was wanting to go back to the finish line and watch other folks finish. And it was just sort of like this really principled feeling. Like I just, I felt like I wanted to be defiant. I, you know, nobody could care where I was, but I just felt like this real draw to just be, to make my own personal statement to myself. So I haven't done it since. Unfortunately, I missed qualify, re-qualifying by five minutes. And then of course, I mean, geez Louise, it's just gotten harder and harder every year mm. since then so yeah for sure yeah well I, I think it's important for the listener to understand too that um your your um your reaction your emotional reaction to the bombing um uh, was at least in part I, I i would venture to guess um related to your love of the city of boston and boston sports um Absolutely. i mean you're yeah. not you're not a boston kid but no. um but you, you have been a diehard Boston sports fan for as long as you can remember being a sports fan. So I, I suspect that, it, that I would venture to guess part of your emotional reaction to what happened uh, in 2013 um, was, was based maybe in part on uh, your love and connection to Boston sports scene. Is that, is that fair to totally. say? Totally. Yeah. I've always been really, 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 you know, really obsessed with the Red Sox. So of course, at the end of that year, when they won it, it kind of like, you know, from a second perspective, sort of tied the whole thing up with this nice little bow and really, it really did sort of tie in all this sort of like Boston love sports love. I mean, there's such cross hibernation between all this, you know, all three of the major, you know, all four of the major sports teams and the marathon and, you know, big poppy and like, yeah, it was just for me, it just kind of like, yeah, it was all this one big thing wrapped up into, hmm. into something um, motivating. And, and now your, your, uh, your endurance uh, training and racing focus is, is different. You've uh, you've moved from uh, you've moved on from um, Ironman distance or, or triathlon in general uh because i i mean you not only did you can did you participate and in, in finish ironman distance triathlons but you 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 i mean you finished uh you know dozens or dozen or more you know half irons um and, and actually you actually you 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 were the overall winner of the granite man triathlon at one point too um but, but one you, second <laughs> but still <laughs> you 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 stood atop the podium there yeah um and then you kind of made the shift into into trail running and i think um you know in and along 2019 when you and i started working together was when you were kind of making that transition from uh from on-road uh triathlon and, and road running to off-road uh yeah. um mountain running ultra distance racing and and um and again you and i have, have worked together since uh since late 2019 well 
you haven't been an endurance athlete your your entire uh, adult I life. Not. I think no. that's fair to say. Um, uh, what I mean, what I what I do know uh, about you is that um, you know you were uh, you were a, a, a very athletic kid. Uh, you were, by your own admission, uh, maybe an oversized uh, kid, meaning uh, you, you were the biggest kid around, which just yeah. which by default meant that you were going to be the best in any sport you did, baseball or basketball or volleyball, because you were just bigger than the other kids. Uh, yeah. That's just kind of how it goes. You were that kid. You were that kid in the Little League baseball photo uh, who was literally standing, you know, a head above everyone else. Right. With, yeah. right, with 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 his elbow atop his best friend's head uh, just because you were just that big kid. Yeah. So naturally, naturally, you were good at anything you did with a with a bat or a ball. Um but at some point, you know, like like this often goes for the the, the big kids who are the best in sports, um, everybody else catches up, um, and <laughs> and and perhaps perhaps your your the trajectory of your uh, early athletic development kind of peaked when you were uh, you know a a youngster, um, and uh, you just you didn't continue to develop uh, that athletic prowess that uh, that defined who you were as a kid athletically uh, and eventually you you moved away from from team sports and um, uh, you as as you and I have talked about you uh, <laughs> you became interested in other things not mm. sports related uh, <laughs> right as is as is often that happens in in adolescence that's right um, uh, and, and so that, you know, you, 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 you didn't kind of parlay a, uh, a youth, uh, or a love of youth sports. You didn't parlay that into, uh, into becoming an endurance athlete, uh, as an adult, you moved away from, from the sport. In fact, from a lifestyle standpoint, I, I would say some, some people would argue you moved quite a bit away, uh, from, uh, from the athletic lifestyle. I think also too, you, you, you described it really quite well. Uh, you have described it well to me in the past. Um, you know, as a, as a kid, you, uh, you, you were a participant in sports. You were an yeah. athlete as an adult, you became a fan. Yeah. Uh, you still love, <laughs> yeah, observer. I mean, you still, your, your love of sport didn't change. You just, your role in yeah. sport changed. You went from, yeah you went from identifying yourself as an athlete to identifying yourself as a lot of other different things, but at least one of those things was a sports fan. Yep. Um, and, and you went to school as you, as you described, you went to Norwich yep. and uh, yep. got your master's degree in architecture. Uh, you said 2002 and right. Correct. And um, after, uh, after, after Norwich, um, you, you took a position, uh, as an intern, right. You were, you were, you were, you had a, you had a, you had a job as an intern after, after graduation from Norwich. Yep. Right. Um, and, um, along about 2004 timeframe, uh, I, I also think you had a fiance at that point too. I did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've been dating a woman since college. Yeah. Right. So you, so you had a, you, you were, you were engaged to be married. You, um, uh, you were a, an intern at an architectural firm. Is that yeah. fair to say? Is that where you were? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think I also read that you had a house. 
I did. I know. Very, I was a young. I was. I was a. I was young and successful. It seems as though when I look back now. Yeah. No. I bought a condo. Uh, my fiance and I, I bought a condo down in Stratum. At a pretty young age. I was now looking back, very surprised. <laughs> but uh, you know, rent was just expensive in Portsmouth, and we found a place that was basically going to cost about the same amount. So we jumped in feet first. Yeah. So there you there there you are in in 2004 your recent college grad uh, with a master's degree in architect architecture, um, you, I mean as an intern you've got a you've got a a, a budding burgeoning athletic or a, a architectural career about to about to kick off. Um, you've got a fiance and a house. Um, I mean things are going really well for you, Jeremiah. Yeah. In right in in and around 2004. Big time. Um, and then late 2000, 2004, um, October 8th, 2004, to be exact. Um, that that day changed the course of your life. And, and maybe I'm overstating that. I mean, you you tell me if I'm if I'm off there. But but October, October 8th, 2004 was a it was a seminal day in your life. It was a it was a transformative day in your in your life. Um, what happened? Sure. Yeah. So well, I would actually say, you know, to, to to be blunt, I guess it was really a transformative day uh, in many people's lives, unfortunately, because I mean, and you know, when we talked earlier, you mentioned the ripple effect, and uh, that's just something that always comes back to me, you know, to realize that uh, you know that the bad day that I was having also affected many other people. Some of them, you know, even longer. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, my Red Sox fandom as, so if anybody, um, or, or, or anybody worth their salt in the baseball world probably knows that 2004, uh, uh, was annoyingly for many, the, the, the big first year and, uh, however many years it was since 1918 or 19 for the Red Sox, uh, that they won the world series. And, um, so that was, you know, that was that to me at the time was a really big deal. I, um, you know, I had had, the, I had, I had been uh, engaged to my fiance and been living in our house for a couple of years and working and, and, you know, considered myself, you know, at the time for being you know, like 25 years old, 24 years old, uh, pretty successful, I guess for a 24 year old, I felt pretty good. And, um, but my fiance and I had some troubles. We had been together for quite a few years. We had been together since early college. And um, long term, over a few months in the summertime of 2004, we ended up breaking up and decided we weren't going to get married. Um, it was a little tragic. It was, um, you know, like three weeks before we were going to get married. So it was a lot of abruptness. There was a lot of like, um, you know, it wasn't just a simple breakup where two people break up. It was a lot of phone calls to people telling them we're not, you know, we're not having our wedding anymore. And, and uh, so anyways, um, yeah, I struggled with that a lot. You know, I had a really hard time with that. I look back now, again, I'm at 43 now. I realized, you know, how much, how I was not nearly as comfortable in my own skin back then uh, as I am now and as confident in myself. Uh, so I had a lot of bad habits. Anyways, I always was able to sort of manage all of my good and bad habits at the time. But I was, you know, I, I would have considered myself at the time sort of a standard, like heavy college drinker. Um, and so when my fiance and I at the time broke up, I just started, you know, I was 24 years old. I was living the single life. I was in a new apartment. I had two, my two best friends were both single. 
lots of partying, lots of hanging out. Didn't really feel like anything out of the ordinary at the time. Although looking back, I realized that some folks were probably looking at me like I was behaving a little bit out of the ordinary. Uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, 18 anymore or 20. You know, I was a full grown adult who could have children and owned a house and had a job and a lot of responsibilities. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of my shtick has always been, I'm that guy that for, I'm, I'm always able to keep it together, together enough to pull the wool over everybody's eyes to do the insidious things I like to do in the past. And, but also, you know, perform enough to keep everybody happy. I always joke in college, you know, uh, I, 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 I did what I needed to do to get a B and I stopped there because the rest of the time was going to be having fun doing something else. So I, you know, I, 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 I was uh, called school came very easy to me, uh, but I would always just sort of like, I always had this sort of internal, like uh, deciding point where I said, okay, well I can do, I know that this is enough. I will get enough of a good grade. I'm looking around at the other folks around me. They're not doing that much more than me or whatever. I can take the rest of this time. I can party. I can go have fun with my friends. I can relax. I can do, you know, get out of my own head. So, you know, I, I, that, that fostered, I fostered that feeling and that relationship for a long time, uh, even through college. And I just kind of was sort of, a, I wouldn't say I was like a big partier, but I was certainly something, somebody that relied on, you know, meeting up my friends at, at the bar after work a lot. And, um, that progressed for a while. Um, and so a couple months after, um, splitting up with my, my fiance, you know, it's been a very exciting summer. The Red Sox had done awesome. I've been to a bunch of games. My friend and my best friend is, you know, equally Red Sox fan with me. It's sort of our big, like we're cohorts. We go off to the games and do stuff like that. Um, I went to what a lot of people consider one of the greatest games of that year. It was the first round of the playoffs. Uh, the Red Sox played the Angels in, I guess it would have been called the wild card game maybe at the time, I think, because the Yankees were in there. And it was a five-game series. Red Sox swept it. I think they swept it. Uh, but they, however, they won. I think I think they swept it and they won it in Game Three, of course, with a walk-off home run from David Ortiz. And me and my best friend and his girlfriend, we were at this uh, sports bar uh, called Jillian's in Manchester, having a great time. We had worked all day. You know, we had kind of doing like it's. You know, we were always very responsible with the things that we had to do. And I think that that always, for me, made me feel like I could be as irresponsible as I wanted to once I was done with all of my responsibilities, you know? And um, so we were out, we had a couple of drinks, we watched the game. I continued on from there that night. And um, I, so I guess I should, I should, I should probably back up one second. You sort of alluded to it before, um, you know, right now, just as an example, I'm a very bald, 43 year old 160 pounds 165 pounds maybe i think you know most people say oh you you look like you're a runner uh i guess that just means you look skinny or you don't eat enough or something like that i don't know exactly what that means but i i, I like it when they say that um 2004 i was about 260 pounds and my diet consisted of uh, uh the cool ranch doritos mountain dew like religiously and then Bud Light and Marble Lights, you know, that was kind of life. Those, those four things were probably the things that I ingested the most over those, that year or two. Um, so I was a really big guy. And, uh, you know, unfortunately at the time I realized, you know, back then it was a point of pride, but, uh, I could drink a lot, you know, like, you know, they say, hold your liquor. 
I don't think that's always the truth, but like with anything, right? You build up, you sort of build your, you build up a little bit of a callus, right? I'm, I was a bigger guy. I drank frequently. Um, so, you know, my experiences with having a couple of drinks weren't always the same as some of the people that I was with sometimes, which could be really deceiving for myself and for other people, you know, and, and, and allow other people to, to sort of let me walk when they might've said something. Um, same for me. You know, I was always very confident in my quote unquote abilities to handle my alcohol, which is really not a thing. Um, uh, so I left the bar that night um, and proceeded to drive to my friend's house where I was going to stay. You know, I felt like at the time I was being very responsible. I was going to stay at somebody's house that was nearby where I was. Um, and in the next 20 minutes or so, uh, I was driving on uh, I was driving in Henniker and I fell asleep at the wheel. I crossed the line. Uh, the yellow line of a road that I compare maybe to uh, maybe 126, a road like 126 or so. I'm just using you. I'm using you as a reference over by where you live. And uh, I fell asleep. I crossed the line and I hit another car um, head on. And the other car had a passenger and uh, a driver. And the passenger was about my age. The jump driver was a little bit younger than I was. And uh, the the driver was wearing a seatbelt, and I hit them basically square on, head on after this soft curve. I was going going about thirty five miles an hour, uh, which does not seem like very much, but they were going about the same. And uh, I'm not going to pretend to know what the math equation is, but thirty five and thirty five going at each other is much more impact than you would probably believe at the at first, especially if you saw the photos of the crash. Um, so myself and the driver of the other car. We're both hurt. I was hurt really badly. Uh, the, the driver of the other car was had some medium injuries. We were both wearing seatbelts, which bait, I'm sure I'm confident now after all of the surgeries I've had, I'm confident that saved my life. Um, but the passenger of their car was not wearing a seatbelt. And when I hit them, he partially ejected from the car. And uh, he, so we, first of all, you know, we ended, we both ended up in the ICU at Concord Hospital. And we were right next to each other in rooms next to each other with our families out in the waiting room, sitting with each other. I can't even imagine what that was like. Um, and eight days. So I was at first, they actually told my parents I wasn't going to make it. Uh, which, again, I'm not a parent. I cannot fathom what that news feels like. I cannot even imagine. You know, I still when I see my mom these days, I still sometimes think about, you know, what it must have been like to get that phone call at two o'clock in the morning. Um, but, uh, I, after a couple of days, I did start to improve some, I had had a few surgeries. I had, a, I, I, I ruptured my intestines, which was what the big problem was. So my body was sort of like leaking, you know, bile and, uh, I was not doing well at first, but they, uh, they cut me open. They took out, you know, like a couple yards worth of intestines and put me back together and gave me a, um, I always call it a colostomy, but it was essentially an ileostomy. So I had a colostomy bag. Um, I broke my neck. I broke, uh, both my arms. I broke my call, my right collarbone. I broke, um, or I broke, uh, both my feet, my left foot. I broke three of the metatarsals, the first three metatarsals on my left foot and my right foot. I, I broke the calcaneus, which is the big like heel plate muscle or, uh, bone. And it split in half, uh, just from the impact of sort of shoving into the, um, to the front of the car. And then I, um, the engine or something happened. I don't know because I don't remember any of it, but something happened with the front end of the, my car sort of like coming into, 
the compartment where I was sitting and I got, a, I, I burnt, my feet got really burned, um, stuff like that. So, um, but surprisingly, and, you know, for the grace of God, uh, after a couple of days, you know, with a surgery or two, you know, the, the prognosis from the doctor to my parents, at least was, we think he's going to make it. Uh, he's doing pretty well. And we, we don't, we actually don't, you know, even though a few days ago, the concept, the, the, the projection was dire, we actually, we think he's going to be fine now. It's just going to take a while, a lot of healing. Right. So I was in the hospital for a few months. Uh, and right next, so right next to me in the ICU was Michael. And that's the person that was the passenger of the other car. And eight days after we got to the ICU, he was, he was never doing well. He had injuries to his head, injuries to his chest, injuries to his legs, uh, a lot of blood loss, uh, massive, um, you know, like big major injuries to his chest was one of the big ones. He passed away uh, on October 16th. So eight days after the crash, he passed away. And um, I should mention, I guess, you know, the, the reason all this, you know, the reason the way the way I think of this happening is so I was put into a medically induced coma after my first surgery. And uh, I don't remember anything. You know, I, I was in a coma for like 28 days. I was out. Uh, 21 days, excuse me. And um, what I remember is I woke up. I didn't know what the heck was going on. Obviously, I've been having absolutely like these really crazy dreams. I'm sure it was the medication I was on, things like that. Uh, but eventually I was awake. And um, I think I was awake for two or three days. You know, my family, everybody was just being so gentle with me, which is just not usually our style. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it didn't take me long to realize that something was up. You know, it wasn't just the... Um, we're, you know, we, we feel bad for you because you're hurt, you know? And I, again, I didn't, I had no, I had no recollection of anything that had happened. Um, everything I even tell you now is, is really from other folks telling me what occurred that night. Um, so my poignant memory really is my mom sitting with me three or four days after I had woken up and had multiple communist seen people. And, you know, everybody was, we were all very happy, very, 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 very happy. Everybody was, you know, um, uh, the phrase was, you know, uh, just focus on recovering, focus on your recovering, stuff like that. But uh, a few days in to being awake and cognizant, my mom um, sat with me and basically told me about Michael, which I had had no idea. You know, I didn't, all I had known at that point was that I had been in an accident that I had caused. I didn't know it was with anybody else. I didn't know what it was. It could have been a tree. It could have been anything. It could have been a porcupine for all I know. Um so I remember, I, to this day, you know, that was uh, 20, uh, 18 years ago, I remember my mom telling me at, you know, at my bed crying and just so upset to look in her eye um, what had happened and what I had done. And, um, you know, the rest from there is sort of, you know, kind of history. I mean, it goes on from there, of course, but I just mean as far as like the action of, of what I did. Um, yeah. It just is um, still to this day a very, obviously a very, very point. So, so Michael was 29 years old at the time. He was five years older than I was. Um, ironically, even though he lived many towns away, he actually, my, my parents and his parents had knew each other and like with common acquaintances. And it was just, um, you know, I don't know, 18 years later, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what happened. Um, 
then it, you know, obviously something that I can never take back. Um, it took me 20, 20, 22 months of, of surgeries and stuff to really, I, I would say, quote unquote, recover. You know, I was so fortunate that um, this colostomy, ileostomy that I had was from the beginning, they told me that they would be able to reverse it. I can't imagine what, the, you know, I, uh, there's, there's so many people out there that, that, that live with having a colostomy and things like that. I was so fortunate enough that that was able to be reversed. Um, and so that, so, um, as you can imagine, I was going, to, I was in a lot of trouble and, uh, but everybody sort of around me, the state and the, you know, whoever, whoever was making the decisions on that decided that um you know we don't want to deal with you when you're in medical issues i don't know whether you know probably cost or or compassion i don't know what it is but for whatever reason they wanted nothing to do with me um but so finally two years later uh, i had been, i was charged with a couple of crimes a couple of felonies uh early on and then i basically was healing and recovering for about two years um and so i was charged with what they call i was charged with an aggravated dewey for causing injury to somebody. And that was the driver of the car, a young woman named Crystal. And then I was charged with negligent homicide for the death of Michael, uh, causing the car accident that was that killed Michael. So negligent, in the state of New Hampshire, at least, negligent homicide means that you um, un, unwill, unwillfully caused the death of somebody, uh, but the actions that you were performing were things that were sort of in your choice and you decided to do that. And, and, and of course, by putting yourself under the influence you you um, undermined your ability to make proper decisions and things like that um so, so 2006 it, go ahead yeah i well i, I i'm sorry for interrupting so i what the part of the story that's that i think is um is really kind of speaks to your uh, really speaks to your character is um when it was when it was time for you to face the music and and face the charges you pled guilty oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah you didn't i mean you you didn't you didn't lawyer up and and try to argue lesser charges or uh try to skirt culpability you you owned it and you pled guilty yes i did have a lawyer but yeah no i pled pled guilty as as terrifying, absolutely 100% terrifying as it was at the time. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So, and, and then you were sentenced to five years in state prison, five to 15. Yeah. It's a little weird how they do it. Um, you, we, we, we always like to focus on the lower number, <laughs> but, uh, the way the state of New Hampshire works is they basically say, we're going to give you a lower number and we're going to give you a higher number. You're, you're going to be incarcerated for the higher number. If you earn it, you can get out at the lower number, which, you know, to be honest with you, if, you know, if you're not acting like a jerk, it's pretty standard to be able to get to, to, to go to that lower number, but that's the, so they call it like five to 15. So you're, you're sentenced to prison for five to 15 years. You're going to, you're going to basically help us determine in that window when we let you out. So yep. this was this. So this was sometime in 2006. You said it was, Six, it yep. was approximately May two 9th. years, two years after the accident. Um, yep. May of 2006, um, you walked into the uh, state prison for men in Concord, New Hampshire um, yep. as an inmate. Do you remember your inmate number? Uh, seven, eight, three, two, five. 
78325. Yeah. And there's a reason I'll get to it in a moment. There's a reason that, um, well, there's probably many reasons why you remember that inmate number, but, um, but that inmate number would become part of your, would, would become a significant part of your story and the story that you would tell, uh, as you, as you attempted to positively influence others. We'll, We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, so here you are, a, a, a highly educated, uh, successful um, young man yeah. in a prison jumpsuit and walking into your cell where you were anticipating spending the next five years yeah. of your life. Do you have any recollection of that first day? Oh, absolutely. In, in yeah. Prison? Yeah. For me, like the one thing I remember, I don't even mean to smile when I say it. It's just funny. So I, I, so I, I have a really, really, really poor eyesight. And I, you know, I wear Coke, I wear contacts, but my, I wear these Coke bottle glasses. And uh, of course, you know, um, uh, amenities, you know, high, you know, nice amenities, like having contacts, those are not things that you're afforded when you're, so I remember, you know, leaving the courthouse and, you know, being handcuffed and going to the prison and uh, having my glasses with me somewhere, but I didn't at the time know where they were. And just like being in this cell and having my, you know, having to take my contacts out and then not being able to see. And I was with these couple other people that had come from a different state that nobody knew anything about. Even the guards seemed to be a little like, you know, a little, doubtful about them at first and uh you know i never i've done a i had done a lot of wrong things in my life but i had never really been in you know i say air quotes i'd never really been in trouble i had talked my way or skated my way out of all of it every time um so i just remember that sort of terrifying you know and and, and just like in the movies you know the, you go in on the entry day and they just make you sit in this one cell where you don't have any of the amenities that you'll eventually have you just sit there for hours and hours and hours and hours. And of course, it just, you know, you go through the next shift and you get pawned up to the next person. And so I remember that. And then, of course, I remember, you know, you know, New Hampshire is a small state. So um, uh, fittingly, the prison is not that large. So it's really a it's it's a broad cross section of the types of people and the types of things that those people have done. So I remember being, you know, the first day that I was there I was in the cell with this person who later I found out was, um, you know, in prison for life with no parole, had you know, like heinously, you know, done some really bad stuff. And uh, yeah, I just remember thinking, like, I don't think I've ever been around somebody like this in my life, you know. Um, always considered myself to be somebody who was pretty accepting and open minded and actually super friendly with pretty much everybody I meet. Uh, but, you know, uh, not to. You know, it just, in general, a, a lot of the people that you run into at a place like that, are not, they're not the kind of people that you meet every day, if you know what, you know, in, in many different ways. So, well, I think that, I, those I are what stick I, with me. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's unfair to suggest <clears throat> that, uh, that, the, that the people you were living with at that point when you were in the, the state prison, were generally not the people that you had hung out with, uh, in your, in your, right. In your previous civilian life, you didn't, you didn't grow up in the system. 
No, no very <laughs> fair statement. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so I, you know, obviously everything about it was, was, was really foreign to you. Um, I mean, how did you think about spending your, spending your time? I mean, it did, you know, the, the thought of being incarcerated for, for five years must've seemed like it might as well have been 5 million years. I mean, how, how did you, how did you wrap your head around the fact that you were going to be spending the next five years in this state prison? I don't, I don't know if I ever really did. I mean, my approach, which I think, you know, eventually, ironically, you end up seeing with my desire to do long distance events and training and stuff. I just, I felt, I just, uh, I was not able to do anything except to keep busy. So I just did a ton of stuff. I got involved in every single thing I could there and just became kind of a, I was super fortunate to be able to, I was a teacher, I got to be a teacher. So that ended up really being sort of my lifesaver through everything because I ended up being a teacher of a class uh, for most of the time that I was there. And through becoming a teacher, um, I was, or what's a better way to put it? All the students that I had, whether they wanted to be there or not, their weaknesses were exposed to me. Uh, And I was, you know, in the fortunate position to be able to try to help these people with sort of educational things, you know, reading and, and then we did some art, you know, we did drafting, we did a bunch of different things, but what that, what that allowed was for a lot of, you know, ra- you know, a lot of random people in prison, some better than others to my benefit, uh, to sort of put them in this position where they almost needed or wanted help from me in a very sort of like positive, you know, healthy way. Uh, but that garnered a lot of respect. And then, the rest of my time there was pretty easy. I just, you know, because I had helped some people in a very positive way, they, you know, I just, I didn't have to deal with a lot of the rigmarole that a lot of other people get caught up in. I was just sort of able to be, I mean, I would want, I would have wanted to anyway, so that helped, but I was just able to be sort of above the fray and um, not get picked on or focused on or everybody just left me alone. And I was able to make friends and, um, you know, because, even when I talk about it now, you know, I, I even understand that um, 16 years later from going in there, you know, we talk about places like that with this real stigma. Uh, we just, we, I say me, I'm certainly not speaking for you. You know, I think we just kind of assume that, you know, every person in prison is bad. They deserve to be there. Uh, they deserve to be there forever or whatever, you know, and that's just, it's absolutely not the case. I mean, the amount of people that are there for doing bad things but not being necessarily bad people or not, you know, is crazy. So um, just like anywhere else, there was plenty of good people there. Um, you just had to dig a little harder than maybe some other places. Um, so I made a lot of connections and uh, with people, you know, connected with people that, uh, that allowed me to pass time. And um, yeah, just focused on like, just focused on hobbies, school, connecting with people outside, you know, you're not much more of an isolating feeling than being in a place like that, especially on holidays and things like that. Um, It was tough. You know, I was uh, at a, you know, a lot of people would say sort of like in in my prime age type of thing, right? I was like, by the time I went there, I was 26 or 27. So I was there, you know, my late 20s. Um, But at that, by that point, I had been, since I was out um, before going in, but after the accident, I had been out for so long that I 
Um, I had a, I had already, I had a girlfriend that I was with for a while. Um, who now I, I'll call her my wife. I've been with her ever since, but that was a huge struggle, of course, and, and uh, kind of getting it both ways, right? Like it's hard. It was hard for me. It was hard for her to be, you know, a young woman dating somebody that she can't, as she, as she would say. Um, I, it's, I feel like I have a boyfriend, but he, I don't spend any time with him. I have to hang out with everybody else alone. I don't have this partner that everybody else has, but I also can't go and do those other things with somebody else because I'm committed to being with somebody. And that was sort of this back and forth that we had a lot. So all of that stuff was a struggle. So um, you more for the people outside. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm, I, I assume that, um, that your family visited you while you were in prison. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that weekly that, yeah, that would seem like a, like a given with as, with as supportive and as close as you are, uh, with your, with your family. But I'm wondering, um, who amongst your friends, um, you don't have to name names, but, uh, did you, did you have folks outside of your family come to visit you or was there this sort of stigma to use the word did you <laughs> did you have friends that were no longer friends anymore because of what you right. had done and 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 where you were yeah no that's a great question no i just i think i'm just i'm just lucky i had a lot of really great friends that um just yeah i i, I guess i i like to believe it's because they knew they knew me they knew all you know they knew all of me and um, had decided a long time ago that we, you know, that they liked me and we were, I was a good person and, and that we had a bond. And, um, you know, I always consider myself to be a very, like a very, very loyal, strong friend. Um, so I know what it would, or I guess, I guess maybe I don't know, but I have an, uh, I have an idea of what it would take for me to sort of break that bond or not feel that way. And uh, I just was very fortunate to have so many friends that, no, I, I really didn't. I just, I had tons of people that would come. I mean, I was a weird statement to say I was the luckiest guy in prison. I really was. <laughs> yeah. Tons of people come to, I mean, I just had college friends, high school friends, family, you know, I was just very, a very fortunate, very fortunate guy. And you know. um, so, so, not only did you sort of assume this work in prison uh, as an educator, um, you also volunteered for a state program uh, in which you were uh, shuttled out to uh, local high schools yeah. um, and um, were you were afforded the opportunity to tell your story um, to these groups of, of high school students um how did that come about first of all um and then um why did you agree why did you agree to do that uh it came about i was again just really fortunate you know uh, i guess i mentioned earlier how the you know the prison in you know hampshire is not a big state the prison is also not that big and part of the trickle down of that is that you know they they house a lot of people together so um, whether someone would agree or not, uh, I'm not, I'm not debating that, but whether somebody would, wherever somebody would decide the severity of what I had done, where that fell, it didn't matter. I was literally living with, you know, uh, you know, my first roommate was a gang member from Los Angeles who had been transferred to New Hampshire because he was getting in too many fights in the prison there. 
He was in uh, prison for life. He was 50 years old. He had been in prison since he was 22 and he had stabbed somebody to death. And that was my roommate. You know, it didn't matter if you were there for life or you were there for a year. It was just a lot of, you know, in a bigger prison, those folks might have been in their own place, you know, because they're sort of looking at a different perspective than some of us, maybe. Um, so I was, so I, I, I made it sort of to like the final area where I was going to live for a while and with, was, was with a lot of these series. Oh, I say that about the series people because uh, they don't take lightly taking people out of prison to do anything. It doesn't matter who's with them. So they treated me like I was, you know, a mass murderer or, or like anybody else they would treat. Like their protocol is to treat me like I am a really bad dude. So you were, you have, so you were shackled. I was shackled at the waist, shackled at the uh, ankle, shackled at the arm. Oh yeah. Everywhere. And, um, you know, you could say a lot of good things and bad things about me, but what thing that most people would not say is that I'm a really bad dude, <laughs> like, you know, as far as like intimidating or strong or, you know, just any of that stuff. So it was always kind of interesting, but honestly, uh, I got connected with those folks in the prison somebody had started the program a few years before me and it had happened for one year and um, it was through the department of transportation. And uh, yeah, I got to, it was the most impactful thing I've ever done in my life. I would go out and speak at high schools. I basically crafted this sort of like 45 minute story, if you will, not story, but it was a truth, but sort of like put together all these different pieces that you and I are kind of talking about right now, right. From just talking about my childhood and I had a cool slideshow that would show, you know, started off showing a picture of me with my geeky big glasses at seven years old. And my, th you know, my thumb in my pocket looked like, like a super dork and then playing baseball and then getting my hair dyed blonde before I went to college. And then the Red Sox were, you know, all these cool pictures and stuff that sort of helped really focus on trying to, you know, we're going around to a lot of rural New Hampshire high schools. And I'm a, you know, I'm a 10th generation uh, New Hampshire farmer. And just felt like there was so much of me to be able to connect with folks. So I just had this really, I was just so, I had this really blue collar background with a lot of sort of friends on the rough and tumble side of things. But I also had this really education, you know, educated um, uh, resume, if you will. Like I went to college and I was sort of worked in this white collar world. So I've, Always, I, I was like sort of this like really good in between, you know. I always pride myself. My my examples, like I go to a job site as an architect, and you know, you hear everybody groan, and they're like, "Oh God, you know, the guys in the suits and you know, the shirts and ties are here." The, I hate that. Like, I'm the first guy to want to go up to the electrician and be like, shake his hand, say hello, talk to him, ask him where he lives, what's going on. You know, I want to be, I want to cross that that bridge. So that just played so well into this idea of presenting to people because. So here I am. So I would go to a school, any school. I mean, I went to every school. I went to Co Brown, you know, where I went to school. And uh, I would be escorted by state troopers. The state troopers would come to the prison and pick me up, shackle me, put me in the car, bring me to a school, bring me into the school. I could, you know, walk like six inches at a time with these shackles on, walk out there in my green uniform and my, you know, my, my 78325 tag. And then the, and they, you know, they would, uh, the, the principal or whoever would introduce me. And then the cops would unshackle me and they would just walk back, you know, like 20 feet behind me on either side, sort of looking like I was super intimidating. And uh, I would just talk to the kids. And um, it was like the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. Um, it was, you know, to tell you 
I would honestly say like, first of all, I was fortunate enough to just be able to connect with people because I could kind of play it both ways. If I went to a town way, you know, I went, if I went to Berlin or something like that, which I did, you know, not, not to sound like I'm being false here. I just sort of could sort of play the narrative however I needed to. So I go to Berlin or Gorham and, you know, I could play up the, I'm a long time, you know, I'm a New Hampshire diehard resident and I grew up in this hard life on the farm, all true. Uh, or I could go to a place like a prep school and I could go to Brewster Academy and be like, I have a graduate degree and I went to college and my parents don't drink. Nobody in my family's ever been arrested in their life. Like all these like other stats and just be like, look what I did because I still made stupid decisions. I was you. you know, I went to college. People that go to prison, they're not just people that don't go to college. You know, it's like it was just sort of breaking down that stigma. I went with you. I had a 3.7. I got my graduate degree. I had a good job. Like I did all the things that you're telling everybody you're going to go do in the next few years. And I did it relatively well. And I still majorly effed up by not thinking things through, thinking things through and affected many, many, many people forever. Uh, so it just allowed the message to be, I don't, I don't even think it was me. I really literally think it was like the background and the story that I could tell with it allowed it to really be sort of like, it felt impactful to a lot of different types of people. So it spoke to a lot of different people. Was, yeah. Was nice. Well, your, your, your background is diverse enough that, um, that you, you could relate in a very sincere way to a yeah. group of students in Berlin, uh, New Hampshire, just as well as you could relate to a student, a group of students in Rye, New Hampshire. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you know, the, the the title of your presentation um uh was the ripple effect yeah. you you came up with that with that title um what wh what did that mean uh, how did you use that title in in your presentation what what was the point of calling your talk to these students the ripple effect so yeah it was a great analogy it was a great metaphor analogy whatever the heck it you would call it or, or visual for people because really i started out i would just talk about literally like throwing a rock or a pebble into the water and watching how that ripple grows right relatively cliche i get it uh, but i just talked a lot about how you know uh especially at that age but always in my life you know i was very centrally focused you know, I consider myself a compassionate, caring person that really looks out for the other people around me. But I'm also always driving my own agenda and trying to do things for myself and trying to live life to the fullest and do hobby. You know, I was always very focused on what I want to do. And the ripple effect was really just sort of a way to talk about how, you know, we want to do what we want to do and we make our own decisions. But don't have blinders on your decisions affect everybody around you. And the older you get and the more serious the decisions that you have in front of you, the the broader the audiences that you might affect. So I talked a lot about just, you know, realizing, thinking about you know, my, my biggest example was, you know, woe is me, right? Like I really, you know, I've had a bad couple of years here. I got in a, I caused a really big car crash. I got really hurt. It was in a lot of pain for a long time. Finally healed up enough, went to prison for a couple of years. I mean, it was like every little, like it was a, a hiccup in every single path of what I would have expected my twenties to be like. Um, but I was not nearly the most affected person. And that was, you know, it took me a long time to really, you know, to really um, be at, not be at peace per se, but just to sort of like grapple with that. Like I just didn't even get it at first. Right. But then, and then I would talk in the presentation about, you know, I just give examples. Like 
some obvious ones. My mom, my girlfriend, my grandmother, right? Like people like that. It's obvious. Their son, their grandson, their 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 boyfriend, their whatever is in prison. It's pretty easy to just make a list of 10 things that um, you, your life might be affected by if that was the case. Um, but then if you just, start, I mean, you literally just start, like I would break it all down, start thinking about like well, Michael, Michael's family, Michael's parents, where Michael worked. You know, and it literally just started talking about these really much like Michael's neighbor or Michael's best friend, like all these different people in Michael's life that 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 their life, um, you know, I couldn't speak to what their life was like now, but I could say certainly because of what I did, their life was different. In Obviously, a, in, starting with him the most, you know. Yeah. In in a sense, do you think do you think th through giving these presentations, you began to explore your experience in a, in a much deeper way? Yeah. When I, yes, I mean, absolutely. It was like, uh, I remember when I got approved to do it, I just remember thinking like, this is going to be great. You know, I, this is going to keep me busy and I'm going to be able to do something good. And, you know, and just thinking about sort of the external effects of what was happening. It was a huge deal to be able to even do it. Uh, but then, you know, about a year in, I remember I was, Part, the arc of part of my conversation and my presentation changed a little bit because I would just talk about how the fact that was uh, I was the one that was benefiting the most from what was happening. And it was for me, it was huge processing, huge therapy, huge all kinds of things. And then being able to obviously see here and there the story helping people or at least starting conversations or things like that um, just made it sort of solidified yeah I, I mean that's that's sort of what comes to mind when i um when i when i hear you talk about it you know the 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 first blush was um or the, the you know the, the first take on it was this is going to be a great opportunity for me to potentially impact the lives of of a student you know who maybe based on my story you know, might not might not go down the same path because they mm -hmm. they saw this guy being you know brought into the gymnasium taking six inch steps and shackles in a green a green yeah. suit i should say that you never heard a word a room go more quiet you talk about a room full of high school kids talking in this in the thing you bring somebody in in handcuffs anybody i mean even as somebody as not scary looking as me and the room is quiet. It's well, very, think, it's, it's eerie. <laughs> I think, I think it's, I think it's important uh, to give the listener the, the, this context too, that um, my kids remember you coming to Cobrown Northwood right. Academy that, to, to right. give yeah. that, to give that presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this, the, the outreach that you did um, while you were incarcerated, uh, both as a, both as an educator um, and, and as a, as a presenter, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people would, um, would, in, would, in, would interpret that work as, uh, an attempt at redemption. In fact, there was an article written about, about your experience, um, a, a, a number of years ago. And, and as, mm. as part of that article, um, like one of the, one of the sublines of that article was the, 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 the word redemption was used, um, you know, and to, to redeem is to make atonement, right, for an error or mistake. Um, 
was that the driving force for you behind these two outreaches? Were you, were you looking to make atonement um, for those mistakes or was there, was there, was there another reason or were there other reasons that, that you did these things? No, I think you put it really well. I mean, that's 100. So I think, you know, the, as I framed it, when I would speak to the kids, a lot of times I would say, you know, like I, <laughs> whether others around me would agree with me or not, I, I consider myself to be just a very gentle, kind, uh, open-minded person, very accepting of others. I am not a person that's going to have a crossword for hardly anybody. I get along with everybody. That's really been my personality my whole life. Um, so, you know, if you and I are hanging out, Chris, and I do something wrong by you, first of all, I know in my head, it's 99% chance it wasn't on purpose. And I know, second of all, uh, because I care about you, I'm going to make sure that I make that better. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to express to you that uh, I didn't mean it or how can I help, you know, and, um, you know, doing something as bad as what I did, there is no, you don't make that better. You know, there is no, like, you don't, there's no, if, if you're looking at other things, like in this, in this, in a simplified way, if you're thinking like the world is like this scale, right? I did this wrong thing, but I tried to make it up to them. And I told them I was really sorry and I cared about them and I wouldn't do it again. And uh, let, let me take you out to dinner as a, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to uh, forget you at this meeting or something, you know, making this up. You know, your intention still can come through, right? Like you can still prove to that person. You can still show them like, Hey, I, I effed up my bad. I totally did not mean to that, to do that. I care about you. I don't want that to be that way. Let me make it better. You can't make something like taking another person's life better. You can't make that better for them. You can't make that better for their parents. You can't make that better for them. They're not even there to experience it anymore. And that was honestly the biggest thing I struggled. I mean, it was just, and I still struggle with to this day. So it was like, I felt like when I was presented with the opportunity that it was uh, just, I always just thought of myself as trying to be an example, a broad enough example that I could, I, the most amount of people could identify with me. I figured if people could identify with me and not say, oh, that's not me. That's the other guy that does that. That's the other, that's the, that's the guy on the wrong side of the tracks that goes to prison. That's the guy that drinks vodka and not beer or something that kills somebody behind the wheel or whatever. Right. You know, I didn't, and part of my story, I'll just tell you, I, I only tell you this because it's part of trying to prove the point. Uh, when they took my blood alcohol, I had a 0.09, which is one one hundredth more than the limit or one tenth more than the limit. Still wrong. Don't get me wrong. That's not a justification, but I'm just saying, you know, it didn't take much for me to get to a place where I made a life altering, horrible decision to affect so many people. It, you know, it wasn't that like, oh, he was four times the legal limit and we pulled him out of the car and he couldn't stand up. It was not like that at all, um, which I think, you know, I used that to try to really drive the point home. It's like, it, it, you know, some of the most people that would come talk to me after some of my presentations would be the teachers. I've done that before. I can't imagine, you know, I could have been you. I could have been you. I've heard that so many times. I could have been you. Ironically, I'll just say to let a lot of people off the hook, like, a lot of people couldn't have been me because I made mistakes and I continued to defy some of those mistakes and continue to make the same bad decisions. And I have found, you know, especially with thoughtful people like my parents and my sister and my wife, not everybody makes those mistakes that I made and still just forges ahead. Uh, you know, but I was very, 
I talk a lot, you know, at that time I was very much like a, on time, you know, I'm indestructible, that whole sort of young person mentality. Nothing's going to stop me. I've done so many things that I haven't gotten in trouble for, you know, I just felt very untouchable and that's, you know, I allowed myself the, the room to make these mistakes. I had been in trouble before, not in a lot of trouble, but I had been in trouble before. I had been in trouble involving drinking. I had been, you know, I had been in trouble in, before involving vehicles. So like, this was not, it was just like, I was this really complicated person where I was like doing all the right things, but also willing to do the wrong things. And I used that a lot to, to try to make an example. And I felt like at the time that that was the only thing that I could figure out at that time to try to make a difference, I guess, you know, I, I basically landed on, I can't make this better for Michael's mom or Michael or Michael's father. All I can do is stop, try to stop other people from creating another Michael situation and doing the same things that I've done because there was just so many places that I could have made a better decision. So it was really trying to get into that thought process of people and have them be like, Oh wait, remember that bald guy that talked at school last year? And you, you know, I don't know, just like that somewhere that they would think back to it. Now there are a lot of people who are incarcerated, um, you know, for making mistakes, some mm. mistakes, obviously much much bigger and, and much more profound than others. Um, not all of them within prison seek atonement or redemption. True. True. Um, some do. And, and you're, you're an example of that. But not everyone who seeks atonement or redemption in prison um, necessarily changes as a mm. result yeah, true. Of the mistakes that 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 they made, um, in other words, s some some people are the same person um, yeah. when they are released from prison, um, and um, but that was different for you. Not only not only did you did you work and 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 you know seek atonement. Um, you know, by, by, by actively attempting to improve the lives of others, even though there was, there wasn't anything that you could do to improve the lives of, you know, to your, to your, you know, the, the, this idea of the ripple effect, there was nothing that you could do to improve the lives of, of, of the victim, um, in your story. Um, but you had a little bit of a redesign, a rebuild. Mm -hmm. A reboot, a reclamation. There's a lot of R words that that that, that we could use to describe um, um, your own personal transformation through through your in, incarceration. Yep. Because as as we as we mentioned before, you know, um, on the day of 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 of, of the accident. You were not an accomplished endurance athlete. In fact, you were just about as far from being an accomplished endurance athlete as one could actually even possibly fathom. Correct. And yet, um, either because of what happened to you um, or in spite of what happened to you, um, you, you, you took the opportunity to, to rebuild a different life for yourself. And, and again, maybe I'm, 
maybe I'm observing that incorrectly, but um, at some point you were paroled. Yep. 2000 um, and uh, I actually got, I was, I physically came home in 2009. You served Very, three and you served three and a half years in prison yep. of, of that minimum five year sentence, but, but, and, and to serve out the remainder of your sentence um, in home confinement. Yep. Right. Um, but you emerged from you emerged from prison, um, whether whether thoughtfully and intentionally or not, um, and decided to take a different path for your life, not professionally, because you would go on to become, as we talked about, a very successful architect. Um, but you you embraced endurance sports. How how in the world did that happen? Yeah, it's pretty funny and actually pretty simple. It's just I, you know, being in prison lit a fire under my butt. It certainly was, um, you know, like they talk about an Alcoholics Anonymous a lot. They talk about your bottom, sort of like getting to the worst point. Well, that was definitely my worst point, and I knew I never wanted to be there again. And I, um, you know, I felt strongly that I had the ability to put myself in a position to not have to be there again. Uh, so I think a combination between that and just like really wanting to make sure I like kept myself I'm, I, I'm just a busy brain like I don't sleep a lot you know I'm up late I'm up early I just my brain's always going uh so I knew I needed to keep myself busy so I started working out just kept it pretty mild I lost this, a lot of this weight was th this was when, while you were incarcerated yeah oh, I lost a ton of weight while I was in prison yeah, yeah. I lost yeah talk like, yeah talk about that yeah, probably about 80 that. pounds in prison wow and then um yeah, just basically doing everything but running. Like I did a lot. I was doing lots of weightlifting and uh, stationary bike, uh, uh, jump rope, you know, just stuff like just hit, you know, doing my own, making up my own hit workouts and just doing all kinds of things to just like burn fat, you know, yeah, and, and idle time. Yeah. Quick, quick interjection. Your, your use of the fitness equipment, was that a privilege that you had to earn or was that oh, yeah. something that was afforded to all of the, all of the inmates? No, you had to earn it. Yeah. Earn it. It was used often to sort of hold, hold over your head a lot. You know, it was a lot of leverage uh, by the folks that worked there, but yeah, you had to earn it. Um, so yeah, they just, I, I just, I came out of prison. So just so much more healthy, so much more motivated to want to remain that way. And then, um, like I literally was home for two days and I went for my first run and, um, I ran a couple miles or something like that. I had been doing a lot of stuff. I hadn't been running, but I had been doing a lot of things that were cardio based. So it's not, you know, normally, you know, I, I wouldn't, I was surprised I could run a couple miles, but I, I didn't have a watch or anything, but I, it felt fast. And I was just like, wow, I feel like, I feel like I can run really fast. So. Over the next like month or so, you know, I, I again, I had a job. I was home. I was on home confinement, but I didn't. I was not afforded the ability to leave or do a lot very often just during the workday. So I started running. After like a month, I just I started wearing a watch, not even like a GPS, but just a watch to keep my time. And I didn't even know what like a good time would be. I mean, obviously that's relative, a good time, but like what a, you know what would be fast? What's a, what's fast for a thirty year old? And uh, I remember googling it, and I was like, oh. Okay, well, so I can actually run pretty fast. And I remember just being like, all right, well, if I'm good at this, that I'm just gonna, like, I wanna jump in. Like, let's just do something, you know? So it obviously felt, you know, fell right into the arc of um, spending time 
being focused on uh, health and, and being fitter. So I started running and, you know, I didn't do that for very long. And then, um, you know, I don't feel this way anymore these days, but back then I was kind of like, well, why am I doing all this running? Like I got to do a race or something. Like, why would I just keep running all the time? Uh, so I just started doing races and that, you know, I started sort of a simple, like doing five K's and 10 K's and Portsmouth and then half marathons and then marathons and half marathons. And then, um, you know, like I said earlier, I, I mean, I really banged up my body in the car accident. So my feet are so funny because my feet will let me run a long time. And then the, the, the repercussion for that is that I might not be able to walk for three days afterwards. Like it's, I have a lot of like arthritis in my feet. Um, but they have always allowed me to, to be able to still run, even though sometimes you'll see me walking, you know, you could see me after getting up from my desk at the office, right. It's sort of backwards mentally. And you'll, and people will be like, why are you limping? Why are you limping? You know, because my foot is so stiff from sitting down, but I go run and it feels like liberating almost for it. You know, the next day it'll hurt, but, um, so I just started doing it more and more. And then, um, realized that the way my feet were, I just couldn't run every day, which is what brought me to the sort of the more of the balance of triathlon, which is really, you know, try, I started triathlon really is like, it was really like a healing thing. You know, it was like, all right, so run, you love running bike gives you the fat burning and the cardio without the impact. And then swimming's kind of like a recovery day. I mean, you can go hard obviously, but it's also like, it doesn't hurt your, you know, it just doesn't hurt the same parts. You're not doing impact. It just seemed like this great symbiotic relationship to me. Um, so I got doing that a lot, even though I was not particularly fond of biking. <laughs> Early on too, you must've still had the support of family because um, you, you, you didn't get your driver's license back obviously when you were released from from prison so um how did how did that work i mean were were you really leaning on the Mm. the support of of family and 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 friends to to get you around to these events i was like a a 12 year old i didn't give so i'm 43 now uh i got out of prison um over just over 12 years ago now uh is that right and um I just got my, I got my driver's license three years ago. I I was not allowed to have my driver's license for 15 years or so. Um, So yeah, I mean, I was like a 12 year old. I literally, you know, part, part, I was joking about my parents at the, um, I've always had a close relationship with my parents, especially my mother. uh, And they don't live too far away, but um, yeah, that's part of the reason we had such a a deep relationship. I was mentioning with the Iron Man and stuff was because literally, you know, I was at the time, like a 30 year old. 31 year old and it would be like all right i'm doing i got a race in two weeks mom and dad and uh and my wife my girlfriend my wife whatever has to work that day uh would you guys mind bringing me to the race and picking me up at five o'clock in the morning and driving two hours down to massachusetts and doing this race and watching it and blah 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 blah, blah. and um it actually ended up being wonderful because i really do think for my even for my parents it, it helped it was a healing process for them too we spent a ton of time together um, but yeah, I mean, a super, I was so fortunate. The biggest fortunate thing in my entire life is that my wife and I live in a house that's a mile from downtown Portsmouth and I worked in Portsmouth. So I was, I have been able to keep my radius relatively small for a long time being a non-driver, which is really helpful. You can't, can't really do that in many places. You can't, you can't live on uh, you can't live in Stratford and be a non-driver right and get to your job and the grocery store and the pharmacy and the doctor's office you just can't i mean or, mm. or unless you have 
yeah, you want to bike for a really long time. No, it's so, so it's so true. Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to wrap up with this, um, Jeremiah. Um, a big part of our work together um, currently in our in our current coach athlete relationship um, revolves around um, curiosity and learning and growth. And we place a tremendous emphasis on those things. I challenge all of my athletes, yourself included, um, to reflect upon race experiences, mm-hmm. positive or negative experiences, however, however an event turns out, whether it turns out the way you intended it to turn out or not. Mm. And I challenge you to reflect upon that event and to, um, to verbalize either either in or, or to or to detail either in either in verbal form or written form um, lessons or learned or or sure. uh, uh, things that you might have known previously that were affirmed as a result of your experience. We, we place a tremendous emphasis on 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 growth uh, and, and growth. Growth stems from learning and learning stems from curiosity. So my question, two questions for you as it relates to growth. Um, and it's a kind of a crazy question to ask, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, what's the most important lesson you learned being in prison? Uh, that family is everything, I would say. And when I say family, to me, family is really anybody that I care deeply about. And, uh, you know, it's like, I think about all the different hardships that people would say that I've had, if they saw some of the, some of the things in my life and they would say, well, you know, whether I caused it myself or not, you know, some hard, gone through some hard times and, you know, being in prison was twofold because it made me realize it, but it also made me see how many, and I mean that with a very strong emphasis, how many people don't have that. And I grew up in a, I grew up in a, blue collar family without a lot of money. I didn't grow up like in a high class family, but I certainly grew up. I, I now have re- come to realize in a privileged enough family where I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to worry about anything. Right. Like we didn't have a lot of money, but I still never worried. You know, nobody ever worried that I was going to be fed, warm clothes, have a place to sleep, have a school to go to a car to ride in a college to go to. I mean, that's what my parents did for me. And, um, it was, First of all, abrupt to be in a place where you could not connect with that by choice. If you didn't want to, I'd never been there before. Uh, I hope to, you know what I mean? And then second of all, honestly, just to see how many people don't have that. And uh, I could even, you know, I, I made it through this, what most people would say a relatively challenging situation, relatively unscathed, at least right, on the surface level. But I, I, I know to me internally how much of that was because of my support system. So I cannot imagine what it would be like to not have that and to go through that situation, the, the situation of being in prison or any other hard, you know, anything else, right? Like a medical thing or cancer, anything. It's just like, I am, it made me realize how spoiled I am. Right. And spoiled. I think it drove, drove home to me extra being spoiled, uh, doesn't does not have to be anything to do with money. So I'm just, I, you know, so that's, that was, that's my biggest takeaway that I still, you know, think about every morning when I get up today. Well, it's, 
it's unfortunate that uh, having a loving, supporting family would otherwise be considered a privilege because it mm. that should be that truthfully should be the standard shouldn't it that shouldn't you shouldn't feel really like should you're you're being spoiled but yeah but but in a sense um having the opportunity to while in prison to interact with people that you otherwise never would have had the opportunity to interact with i wonder if that didn't give you a, a even greater and deeper appreciation for family than maybe you had had before not that you weren't appreciative of family but but 100 uh, but but that dichotomy. Yeah, 100%. Those that, those that have and those that have and, and those that have not. And then my last my last question for you is um, uh, what's the most important lesson you've learned through um, through your time as, as an endurance athlete? Uh, the work is never done, uh, no matter how strong you think you are. Uh, you could easily F it up at any given point. And, um, you know, I think even mo mostly recently for me and really not even, I wouldn't even say in a, it's not even necessarily coming from a negative headspace, but um, you, uh, we can conquer things that are a lot bigger than we ever think we can, but that doesn't mean we're going to do it the next time either. You have to stay diligent and diligent, diligent, is that right? Uh, to, to, to whatever your cause is, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't prioritize what you're doing and decide, you know, for me, I've, I've come to find out that I'm just, I'm so busy these days. I have so many things that are going on, all great things, like really great. My life is great. I'm so lucky. Uh, but if you don't purposely focus on the things that, um, you're, you're saying are important to you, they can easily fall by the wayside. It's, you're, just because you've proven to be strong in the past doesn't mean that it's it's not just a God-given talent. Being to me, being strong is really it's a, it's a it's a in a weird way sort of like a its own muscle that you got to work out. Like you got to practice that stuff. You know. Well, I was just so. I was just going to say it's a it's a daily exercise. Absolutely. Not not necessarily a physical exercise, but exercise yeah. in the sense of it's a daily practice. Um, yeah. Right. That. Um, uh, that, um, that intention and productivity, uh, the moment that they are taken for granted, um, are the moment that they, they, they quickly fade away. They, they, yeah. they, uh, you know, they, they all of a sudden are just outside of your grasp. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Uh, and, and you, as much as any athlete I've ever worked with, um, embraces the process yeah no thanks yeah and, and, and process is the best part <laughs> and loves the process it's all yeah. about the process the yeah. the event is the reward uh yeah. at at the at the end of the at the end of the camp jeremiah this conversation has been um it, it's been in, in, incredibly enlightening um i I'm so appreciative of 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 your honesty and and your openness and in, in sharing this and sharing what you know what 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 clearly um was the was the worst day of your life um yeah. and um and and you know how how sincere and 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 genuine you know you you are um and and again how how open you are uh about about telling this story um so thanks again for for being on the show 
Absolutely, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I think it's been great. I've been listening to all your other ones. You've been doing a great job. So yeah, thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's, it's again, very cliche to end with, but like, it's really never too late. You can always, you can always change the course that you're on no matter what. I was pretty young, so I was pretty lucky, but, um, no matter how dire it is, like, like I said in my, like I say in my presentation, there are not too many, there are worse places. Definitely. There are not too many worse places in the world to be than prison, like the metaphorical prison, right? Like it, it, maybe prison in New Hampshire is not the worst, but just being in prison, it's literally like lack of freedom, lack of loved ones, lack of everything. And you can still always, no matter what, with, with, um, with the right approach and the right attitude, you can always overcome it. So that's what I've taken out of it. That's a great point to end on. Thanks yeah. again, Jeremiah. Thanks, Chris. The Christian meaning of redemption is the promise of God to deliver us from the power and presence of sin. That deliverance, however, is not mere happenstance. It takes work, good work, purposeful work, the kind of work that creates a positive ripple in the interwoven tapestry that we call life. And that work becomes our life mission. Well, if you like what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.